Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. A pleasure again to be worshiping with you this evening as we uh, continue through the book of Genesis. And let's start this right with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for each breath and each moment that you give us. God, let us commit this gift of time to you, Lord, to worship you, to honor you, to praise you, to build one another up, to encourage one another in your precious name. Lord, I pray that as we go through this passage, yes, Lord, that it will work on us. God, that the realities of sin and darkness, Lord, that we will be cautious and we will see them. And in that darkness, Lord, that we remember that there is also a great light. God, that we can rely on your Son and rely on you in all things. Amen. So as we've been continuing through the book of Genesis, we've seen a grand creation that was made good. We saw... A creation that was then called very good in humanity. We also then saw the horrendous fall of that creation. And we saw the attitude of sin and the lack of repentance continue on in humanity. And we thought it couldn't get worse. But yet it will. And if you would please turn with me to Genesis 6. And we're going to see in our passage today depravity of likes of which you yourself have never seen in your lifetime. Because it's going to be the kind of evil and corruption that we see in this passage that is actually going to cause the Lord to feel ill towards His creation and even leave the world devastated with a flood. Now this section of scripture that we're reading today, I'll admit to you right now that there is a little bit of controversy among uh, Bible expositors and theologians, and I'll go through some of that with you this evening in regards to language of who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men. And there seem to be some endless debates that go on about this particular passage, but what we need to remember through all of this, no matter what the arguments, no matter what the debates, nonetheless, what we see in the end is we see evil increasing. We see evil abounding. We see the evil intent in the hearts of God's creation. So whatever view you may take of these details that we go through tonight, it is clear that these verses show how wicked the human race had become and that God was certainly justified in destroying them in the flood and yet also providing hope and beginning again with Noah and his family. So as I read, please remember this is the word of God. Genesis 6. 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. After chapter 3, we don't see Satan mentioned much in Genesis, if at all. But behind the scenes, Satan and his minions are doing all that they can to keep the promised Redeemer from being born. This was Satan's purpose throughout all of the Old Testament history. After all, he didn't want his head crushed by the Savior, as God foretold, as we see in Genesis 3.15. God had declared war on Satan, and the deceiver was going to fight back. What was Satan's plan on trying, I use the word trying, to defeat God's people in Noah's day? Well, and this is where some of the argument comes in. You see, his plan, according to some, was to entice the people to turn their backs on God. And in some of the many ways that we face temptations today, he brought that before them. And they say, well, what, what do I mean by that? What are some of the ways in which Satan tempted these people? Well, Satan's methods have not changed. The temptations they faced then are the ones we face today. And his goal was to make it so they would be one friendly with the world. James 4.4 tells us that calls us an adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We need to remember that, yes, talks of the spiritual and the flesh occur even all the way here at the beginning of time and the beginning of humanity. There was the sin nature to battle. There were the temptations to battle. And what we see is that humanity became indeed friends with the world. Another way in which Satan attempted... He enticed them then to not only become friends with the world, but even to love and cherish the world. 
And we see warnings of this in the New Testament in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Finally, not only was it to be friends with the world, to love the world, but also then to conform to the world. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now I know that these individual items are not specifically laid out in this passage in Genesis. So why do I bring them up? Well, it's because you are either for the Lord or you are against the Lord. You're either with the Lord or you are with the world. And to say that there was not a single good intent coming from the heart of humanity at this time means they have completely sided with the world. And they have sided with Satan. So yes, by implication of the evil in their hearts, they have become friends of the world. They love the world. And they have conformed and transformed themselves over to the sin nature. Now some interpreters view this section of Scripture, and just, I'm sure some of you have heard some of these different uh, ideas of this text. Some interpreters view this section as an invasion of angels who cohabitated with women and produced a race of giants. And while this theory is interesting, it also uh, creates some issues that we need to address in Scripture. For instance, in Matthew 22.30, we read, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. So in other words, what we learn is that angels do not procreate. So right here, this creates a tension with the text, with this particular theory. We then look through the text further and we see that, uh, that not only do the angels not need to procreate because they were created as eternal beings, that even if this union could occur, then why is it then that the offspring would be giants? And how did these giants, called Nephilim, which means fallen ones, how did they then survive the flood? It says here, But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Do we recall that text? And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. 
And they said, the land we explore devours living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Enoch come from Nephilim. And all this coming from Numbers 13. So yes, the Nephilim exist even all the way in the days of Moses. Is that to say there was a second invasion of angels after the flood? I, I don't believe so. We also see the term sons of God does refer to angels in Job 1, 2, and chapter 38. But when this phrase is used in Job, it refers to unfallen angels who are faithfully serving God. Even if fallen angels could make themselves appear in human bodies, why would they then marry and settle down on earth? Certainly, their wives and neighbors would at some point detect something off about them. And also we see here that the offspring of these people in this text were people, not monsters. And the emphasis of chapter 6 in Genesis is on the sinfulness of man, not on the rebellion of angels. Its focus is on humanity's condition and where they are going as a people. And God states clear in this section that the judgment was coming because of what man had done and not an angelic creature. As it says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of thought of his heart was only on evil continually. Verse 4, it says, There were giants on the earth in those days, but it doesn't say that there are the children produced by the sons of God and the daughters of men. It does have this to say about the offspring. And the same became mighty men of old, the men of renown. So we see these weren't just, these weren't mythological monstrosities. They were flesh, blood, they were people. And I think the record here shows that these giants were on earth before the sons of God and the daughters of men. Then they began to produce offspring. Now, there's one more theory about this particular text. And it's regarding the identity of the sons of God, which says that they were a lustful, striving for fame and, and fertility. And it suggests that maybe they were powerful rulers that were indwelt by demonic possession. It was also a pagan belief that the giants, the Nephilim, the men of renown were of somehow divine origin. And that the Canaanite cults of this age included fertility rites and supported magic based on the fact that people were somehow supernaturally affected through an object that pointed to them. But ultimately, I believe when we learn about the Nephilim and we talk about these sons of God and the daughters of men... I believe what we're talking about, I think we're looking at figures of speech of people. Some that is consistent within the context and the language of the passage. We see the sons of God taking women in marriage, for which we hear the expression, someone takes on a wife or takes a woman for themselves. 
is normally used. And the expression of sons of God from this way is understood. It's a figure of speech for men, reflecting the creation of man first by God, just as the expression daughters of men is intended then also to be a figure of speech designated for women. We see in Genesis 24, 13, the same expression refers to women generally, not necessarily wicked women. And it's consistent with the context. Now, this might be a little bit of uh, dry academia for you to listen to. But it is interesting because there is a great deal of discussion that goes back and forth on this particular topic. And ultimately what we see is these Nephilim, yes, are giant-like. They denote men of large stature, not so different from the likes of Goliath. And it's like an alternative designation of the, this group that is then later described as mighty men or proven warriors. That because of their stature and their military prowess, they were, they were famous because of how strong they were. But they became famous and they became popular because if they were indeed warriors and men of renown, then you know then there was also wars. You know there was bloodshed. You know that people were fighting with one another. And we see that this is the wickedness of man that was so great on earth. That every thought that came from them was evil continually. One of the things we are blessed with is God's grace over the people this day. Now, what do I mean by that? God has placed a general grace over the world, which allows us the ability to love one another, even for individuals that do not know God. A general grace which allows us to have some type of relationship. Because one day, as Scripture says, that grace will be lifted. And we will see all kinds of evil manifested, and it says, not unlike that of the days of Noah. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would look like if humanity lost not just some sense of decency or some sense of goodness, but lost all sense of decency, all sense of goodness, and completely gave itself over to every evil desire of its heart and mind. It's a nightmare. It's the darkest kind of thinking. It's the, it's the type of nightmare that when you dream, you wake up and you're in a cold sweat and your heart rate is up and you just look around for a moment trying to get in touch with reality again. This is the type of evil we are talking about in this text. Evil which abounded. Evil that was not held back by any means. God's words concerning the human race here in this passage, it's filled with sadness. It's people's wickedness was great. Every imagination of their heart was, as it says, only evil. And not only only evil, but it says only evil continually. 
So in other words, it did not cease. Every indication of his heart was evil from childhood. God had designed humanity. The Lord God formed them. But humanity had taken the capacity for good which God had given him and produced instead every kind of evil. Every kind of evil. In other words, everything that you could possibly imagine that was away from God, that is what was being developed. Sin is anything which is contrary to the nature of God. Any action which is contrary to the design of God. Therefore, evil falls in that same definition. They were now producing it. It would be hard to find a stronger statement in the Bible about the sin of mankind than in this passage. This verse gives insight into Jesus' explanation where he says in Matthew 24, 38, In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And it seems like a, a harmless statement until we see this context. God was forgotten by his people. He was openly defied by the men who were corrupt and full of violence. And now that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, so God said to Noah one day, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. So these word plays that we see in verses 5 through 8, they're, they're striking. They're loud. They point to the darkness of the world at this time. God has ill feelings that He had made man because of the sin of man. It had filled Him with pain. God anticipated precious fruit from His people, but that was nowhere to be seen because the sinfulness of man had prevented any fruit to come to bear. So the sin of humanity brought the Lord pain. This is why the pain was brought into the world according to what we see. And God was grieved by this sin. But now, rather than comforting man, God was pained for making them. And this means that, yes, God was sorrowful. God was sorrowful. The word used here for God regretted. We seem to misinterpret that in terms of thinking God made a mistake, but that is not the nuance of the word. The nuance of the word means it gave God pain. It made God ill. Seeing his creation now made him ill to his stomach. Not so different from how we see God burn with anger against people that defied him and worshipped idols. God was grieved. 
there are four words in this passage that we need to make sure we emphasize. And uh, if you don't mind taking notes or highlighting, but it says here, the wickedness of man was great. The wickedness of man was great. It was large, it was abounding. It wasn't a small or trifle thing. It says, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Every. Everyone. And it was only evil. And that it was continually. These words reveal the condition, yes, of the human family that was in the world at that time. So if we look at these verses, verses 5 through 8, with those that come just before 1 through 4, these, the oppressors were mighty men, men of renown, it says. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great. The wickedness of a people must be truly great when there are notorious sinners who are men of renown among them. Think about that. We usually don't praise people that are evil. We usually don't think about Hitler and say, there's a man of renown. Whew. But yet here, their men of renown, their leaders, their warriors, were of great depravity. They were evil, and yet they were renowned amongst their people. When you look for leadership, we don't look for the evil leaders. No, we try to find the good ones, but not here in this text. This was sin, which was itself gross, heinous, and infuriating to the Lord. And it was committed daringly, and it was in direct defiance against God. But we saw even within the people themselves and their leadership, there was no restraint, no attempt to punish it by those who actually had the power to do so. There was no good among them. Now, even though swift judgment would fall, God's judgment would fall because God's Spirit would not always shield these people, as we read in verses six, uh, in chapter, three, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. During this time, we're going to see Noah is going to be a preacher of righteousness. And that if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but God would then protect Noah, the only preacher of righteousness, and his family and seven others. And although God was grieved and heartbroken at the level of darkness in humanity's sin, we praise God and we thank Him that even in spite of how horrible everything was, He chose not to destroy everyone. But He chose to show grace and mercy exactly where He thought He could. And that was Noah. And we see in this God is about to alter His visible procedure for dealing with man. Yes, to Noah He will be merciful and long-suffering to show himself to then also be a God of judgment to those that turned their backs on him. 
And what we're going to learn is this flood is going to be so monumental, a judgment of such epic proportions that what, no matter what culture you can imagine, there is some tale of a flood. Ancient cultures throughout all time have a story of a flood. And that was God's judgment recognized, recorded, and passed on. A reminder of how God truly feels about sin and wickedness. We read in Ecclesiastes 8.11, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Noah was a recipient of God's grace. And yes, he was then spared the judgment in the time And one day, Israel will know that they are chosen by God and that they should live righteously. And God's people, they would meet one day the Nephilim. They would meet the Anakites. Numbers 13.33, we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim and the Rephites. And, the terri- and then we see in Joshua, and the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the last of the Rephites who reigned on Ashtaroth and Edrei. And one day the Israelites will enter the promised land. And they remember that they should not fear the demigods. They remember that God would judge the corrupt world for its idolatry and its fornication. And in the later day, the wicked will suddenly be swept away by judgment when God will establish His kingdom and blessing. Yes, God will one day wipe out all evil on earth, just as He would one day wipe out the evil of this early world in Genesis 6 with the flood. He will do the same. Matthew 24, 36-39 says, No one knows about the day or the hour or even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So through it all, even though there is darkness, even though there is evil which abounds, an evil that abounded then, an evil which will abound again one day in the future, God's love still shows clearly. Even when the rumbling of God's judgment began to threaten the people of the earth, and we see such an awful state of things, when only one man or one family, being Noah and his family of faithfulness and virtue, was all that remained among the sons of God. Only one man out of all the countless of multitudes then on the earth was fit than actually to receive God's grace. The scripture says, But Noah found grace, favor, approval in the eyes of the Lord. And the word grace means acceptance and favor. It was love and mercy in action. And God, by extending mercy to Noah, signified that there was, yes, new life, new hope for mankind in the days ahead, even in spite of the darkness. God's judgment cleanses, and God's mercy 
keeps us in hope. And this will remain true when Jesus returns. Yes, Christ will come again and he will judge. But remember, Christ will come again in his hope and establish himself on his throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening and for this time together. Lord, help us not to be disheartened by the nature of the world or the nature of darkness, Lord. But God, help us to find our hope in you. Let us remember the mercy in which you showed Noah. Lord, the smallest of remnants of righteousness in a community that was filled with darkness. Lord, we reflect on that and we find ourselves truly blessed today. God, in your righteousness, let us remember to fear your judgment and to take it seriously. To seek to honor you and obey you. And Lord, to be filled with the hope that we know comes with, yes, your righteous mercy as well. God, the hope and mercy we have in Jesus Christ. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And let us continue to hope in you. Amen.